Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 22. And then we're going to read a second passage of Scripture, 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. So Galatians 5, 22, and then 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. The title of the message is, Fruit of the Spirit, Self-Control. Paul is writing, and he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul writes again in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. Lord, help as we study your word. Self-control um, is a concept that is mentioned in, in the Greek. And the word is ekratia. It's a concept that is mentioned in the Greek in, in the Bible only three times. And every one of the times it's mentioned, there's no explanation. So we have to assume that the writer knew that the readers understood exactly what this word meant. And the word ekratia means mastery or control over. Mastery or control over. And so when we look at self-control, it's being able to master yourself. Have control over yourself. And because it's only used three times and, and each time in the context is not used with explanation. I've chosen another passage that I think probably explains the concept, though using a different word. And that's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul talks about the idea of discipline. Now, as we look at 1 Timothy 4, we, we see <clears throat> that the first exhortation in verse 7 that Paul gives was that Timothy was to have nothing to do with worldly fables, things that were fit only for old women. Now, Paul has taken a real, a real bashing for somehow being less than to the female gender. And if you really understand Scripture and the context in which he was writing, nothing could be further from the truth. He wanted women to become everything God created them to be. No ceiling. I want you to hear me in that. I know at face value what you've heard in the past and what you read without understanding the context or the verbiage makes you believe it the other, otherwise. But it's not true. And in this passage, he's not trying to give an overarching statement, a comment about something that old women do every place. The Ephesians were quite female dominant in their culture in that they had the temple of Artemis or Diana there. And so the women in that community felt like they were, they, were, they, were, they were it. And thus he had to give a lot of exhortations about how homes ought to be run and literally help women understand that you can't boss your husband around. Amen. I'm sorry, ladies. You thought you could do that? You thought you could do that. By the way, neither can men boss their wives around. Nobody bosses anybody around. The Bible doesn't say anything about it, it, the, the privileges that somebody has in authority to somehow subjugate somebody to their authority. 
it does talk a lot about the voluntary submission of those under authority to the one above them. But nothing about subjugation. Jesus said, in fact, don't do that. The Gentiles lord it over people. You, I tell you, disciples, serve one another. For the least in the kingdom will be the greatest of all. And so, simply because you happen to have an XY doesn't mean that you can wear your stripes in your house and tell your woman what to do. Gentlemen, you need to get another thought. Need to serve. Love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her by sacrificing himself and dying on a cross. Oh, women think the Bible has so much to say about oppression and pushing down and that marriage is the institution is to keep women in their place. <laughs> uh, all men got to do is die. <laughs> That's all we got to do is die. Everybody has a role to fulfill and nobody has to sacrifice more than the other. Yes. Discipline in this context He's saying, make sure your mind is disciplined well, and don't base any of your theology on the old things that are happening, the things that are myths there in the, in the town of Ephesus, whereby these, these older women have grown up in the environment where they've heard stories about these gods that existed in, in mythology, Greek or Roman mythology. And then they add them to their spiritual mix of what it looks like to envelop the, the person of Christ. And he says, stop it. Because that happens in Ephesus with old ladies telling these fables. Don't you have anything to do with it? I think this comment was simply about the people in that particular town that had that issue. Not a comment about all women every place. But he's talking about discipline and what it means to make sure you're on point if you're the leader. And Timothy was the leader of the church in Ephesus. And he says, not only do you need to make sure that your exhortations aren't mixed with stuff from the world, but you need to make sure you are also bodily disciplined and spiritually disciplined. So your theology is on point, and then you are living in such a way that you are benefiting from the right decisions that are in the best interest of your physical health, and you are living in such a way that you are making right decisions regarding your spiritual health so that not only are you growing, but everybody around you is now growing. Yes. And that you are architecturally putting things together whereby a, a, a building can be constructed called a church that gives glory to God. And so we're going to talk about what discipline looks like because discipline, I think, most closely relates to the concept of self-control. And here we see that Paul gives two ways that we need to be disciplined. Now, the first way I'm going to talk about, you're not going to like it all. In fact, you might not come back next week. <laughs> Bodily discipline. <laughs> who, who likes this part? And he says that bodily discipline is of little profit. Now, because he mentions the word little there, most people will run past that in a hurry thinking, I've got an out. <laughs> if I just concentrate on the spiritual stuff, I don't have to do anything with respect to this thing here. This is where the Greek helps. Now, you don't have to know Greek to understand your Bible. But you, you, if you really want to know the details of everything that was mentioned in the original language and how it fleshes out and gives more color to the English, 
and you want to be able to teach it to others so that they understand, you probably ought to at least have word studies available to you, things that allow you the privilege of understanding what the original word was in, in, uh, that the, the writer was writing, or in the Hebrew for that matter. It helps. Now, it doesn't give you a different message, same message, but greater definition. So it's the difference between looking at a TV in regular and 4D. Yeah. Four, high def, four, what do they call that? Help me. 4K? 4K, or 3D, 4D, 4K. All of that. <laughs> Yeah. And, and Greek allows you the privilege. So the, 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 the term here for little is actually that which says temporary. So it's not talking about the amount. It's talking about the length. And he's looking at that in contrast to the other, which provides much longer benefit, which is spiritual or godly disciplines, and that they benefit in all things. And for all time. So when we do things that are spiritually on point and we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, it benefits our soul, it benefits the people around us, it advances the kingdom, and it allows us to be put in the place where we can receive rewards in heaven whenever we get there. It benefits in every way. Bodily discipline has a temporary benefit. Now that temporary benefit is long when it comes to our definition because it is as long as you breathe. Meaning, it may not have any, when you get to glory, there's not going to be a stress test for you there. <laughs> Nobody's going to ask you what your, 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 your average heart rate is or put you on the treadmill and put an EKG up there to see if you're fit to be in glory. That's not going to happen. And I'm so happy there are no treadmills in glory. <laughs> no tennis shoes, no shorts, no white socks, no tank tops, nothing, no, nothing you need to worry about in terms of dress for at athletic activity. Working out. CrossFit. <laughs> CrossFit. But we're going to be here a pretty long time. Now when we, get, when we get on the other side, whatever it looks like, because eternity is a really hard concept to put in our brains. Because eternity doesn't have a beginning or an end. It, it, the only reason eternity, as we know it with respect to time, though eternity is outside of time because time has measurements and it allows you to know what one day is according to the other and what past and what future is, eternity doesn't have any measurements. If anybody tries to put some artificial boundaries around it, they don't fit very well. They might work for the, for the, for the, for, for the person to try to comprehend what's going on, but it's unneeded mm -hmm. because the people who are in eternity don't die. So if it didn't work out today, it'll work out today. <laughs> are, are you it's hard for our brains to figure that out. So when we pop into eternity from this temporal reality, I'm not quite sure where we come in. And this is why John was able to see things from the past and things in the future at the same time as he was looking at heaven. This is why Daniel was able to see things in heaven that were way, way, way out. The, the Messiah coming and stepping his foot on the Mount of Olives, that was in Daniel. How could he say, well, he, he had a vision. The kind of eyes went right, oh, that's, eternity is different. And when we get there, we're going to have these wonderful physical bodies that are different than the ones we have now. They won't need to get in shape. There will be no discipline necessary. It's going to be great. 
But while we are here, we have to care for these things. Because of Adam, I'm convinced that Adam would have never had a workout routine if he hadn't sinned. I'm convinced. Why? He was made perfect. As perfect as perfect could be for a human being, he was it, both he and Eve. It's, it's the fall that caused the degradation of ourselves, the dying process. And then all the stuff that was around them that was so wonderful. What he had in Eden, the grocery store, is unlike any we have here. It was amazing. The fruit was perfect. When he got out of the garden, one of the curses was you would have to now toil in the ground by the sweat of your brow. He had to work when he was in Eden, but there was no sweat associated with it. It was just wonderful work. He didn't have to work hard. It was good work. But when he got out, he had to work hard. Now he was sweating for the first time. And that tells me a lot about what he didn't have to do with respect to exercise in the garden. The man never sweat. That's really cool. And he was in perfect shape. Perfect shape. But outside, he'd have to sweat. The degradation of his cells as a result of sin setting in his body caused his body now to not live as it should have. He was created immortal, but now that immortality was over. He'd live a long time, but death was sure. And that was as a result of his cells just giving out. On top of that, the stuff he had to eat, he said, God said, the ground is going to produce for you thorns and thistles. Such a contrast from what Eden was. Just reach up and pull out an apple that was the size of a watermelon. Sweeter than any honey crisp you will ever sink your teeth into. And all the nutritional value that could sustain life immortal. But now he was outside. And whatever this ground was, it wasn't like Eden. It was now tainted because of his disobedience in all of creation had been messed up as a result of him. The animal creation, the earth creation, man. And we are still dealing with that, aren't we? I mean, if we weren't trying to always figure out how to make sure that the stuff we put in our body doesn't hurt us, thorns and thistles, Mm -hmm. Whole Foods would be out of business. Why do we shop at Whole Foods? Why do you spend three times the amount of money on food? Because Whole Foods is crazy. It is nuts. I mean, a bag of chips will cost you a 10 spot. Are you kidding me? They don't taste that good. Nothing tastes that good for $10. I'll just go ahead and eat the nasty, all GMO-filled, preservative-added Tostitos. I'm not doing $10 chips at, at Whole Foods. Why do we do that? Because we realize the stuff I'm putting in my body is hurting me. Is it, is it naturally sourced? Is it organic? Is it, is it free range? Is, we have to always figure out how in the world are we going to make sure that the stuff we put in doesn't hurt us. It actually helps to elongate our life rather than shorten it, to make it better rather than worse. And so we're still dealing with the curse. Outside, it was worse. And so now we have to figure out what discipline looks like, self-control. Our bodies are temporal things that 
that house the, 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 the God of the universe. And yet, they're important even though they're passing away and that God called them the temples of the Holy Spirit. And so we're called to care for them. And that care needs to be with great diligence. Paul said it like this, and I believe he was speaking with respect to the moral stuff that needed to be on point regularly, that his compass needed to be pointed in the right direction, due north on a regular basis, so that he didn't, he didn't fall away from that which was true. But in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, For I, when I look at life, I look at it like a, 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 an athlete who goes out and trains so that he might win the prize. And I choose to make my body my slave. Lest after I have preached others, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, lest after I have preached others, I myself might be disqualified. Amen. So I think what that to which he was referring was saying, i got to make sure I, I'm living right so that after I tell people to live right, they can look at me and see that I'm living right, lest after I tell them I'm living right, I be accused of hypocrisy and lose out on my inheritance with them and be disqualified from having any benefit in the earth any longer. I don't think it meant that he would not be qualified to go to heaven. Our ministry has little to do with our placement in glory. That happens only as a result of Jesus Christ dying for us and forgiving us for our sin. But our ministry has great impact on people here. And if for some reason I do stupid after I've told you to do right, now you probably aren't going to show up in church and listen to what I have to say anymore. And so I probably won't show up either. Because nobody will want to listen to what I have to say anymore. And so even though I'm still loving God and, and, and I, I have a relationship with him and he loves me and I'm going to heaven, my usefulness has been compromised. And I can no longer bring kingdom benefit as I would like because I have disqualified myself from you being able to trust me. And I don't ever want to be in that position. And so Paul says, I make my body my slave. I don't let my flesh run my life. Things that I want to do, I choose not to do, he says. Things that I don't want to do, I choose to do because I love my God and I love my people. And I want them to see an example of what kingdom looks like on a regular basis. I'm letting you know my life is not defined by what I do on a Sunday morning. I need to perform well for you so you can feel like it was worth your time coming. But the real, the real stuff I do on the regular is, is 95% of all my ministry and consumes my life. And this is five I am working hard to make sure that the overflow that you experience comes from integrity lived back there. That on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you can be certain that Sunday is going to sound like Brett lived right on Thursday. Are you listening to me? We are not a performance-based church. I tell my staff that. You don't live this thing according to our values then you are not as valuable to us as an employee as you would be if you held on to the values because we are not just into performance here. Yes. Your job evaluation also deals with your character, not just how well you did in your stats. You have to be a steward of our values, not just a recipient. Life for me 
is lived much more fervently. Even though I'm pretty fervent this morning. <laughs> much more fervently on Tuesday. So Paul says, I make my body my slave even when nobody else is watching. Now, even though this has probably the primary uh, meaning of making sure that his moral life and his ethical life stayed on point so that he can never be disqualified from ministry, it does have real meaning for what, it, what it's like for us to live in such a way that our bodies are really cared for by us so that we can do ministry without being disqualified. So l- let me help you. Do you remember when you were, when you were 20, uh, in college or not, and how it was normal to order Domino's at 3 a.m.? <laughs> that's, that's what you do. Or fast food six days a week. And, and you didn't feel nothing. You didn't gain weight. It was just <laughs> good. But all of a sudden, you hit 30. <laughs> and you just didn't feel as good as you used to feel when you were 20. And you figured, well, you know, I probably need to start a New Year's resolution and get to lifetime fitness. That's what I need. I, I, I just need... And, and, you st- and then you get to 40. And you're not feeling even as good as you were at 30, and that wasn't as good as you were at 20. But it's not bad enough for you to hit the emergency button yet. You're not calling 911. You just figure, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to feel 20 anymore. <laughs> and then you get to 50. And there you're sitting on the couch. And the remote's there on the coffee table. <laughs> and you lean over to get the remote. Oh. 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 Wait, wait, wait. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, Jesus, help me. Oh, oh, Jesus, help me. I just need a moment. I just need a moment. Woo, that remote got heavy, didn't it? Did that remote heavy? That remote was so heavy, I just didn't think it was that. It didn't seem that heavy yesterday. Oh, just, oh, 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 Trying to find a place to cut for Thursday, did he? And then you take some Advil. You go see your chiropractor, and in two weeks, you back feeling good again. But you haven't done nothing about it. All you've done is put a Band-Aid on it. You fix a symptom, but you didn't fix the problem. Then you get to 60, and you're out there in the garden doing your stuff with the plants. You're bending over, and then you reach, and you realize, Matilda! <laughs> Matilda! You realize she gone, she gone to giant to the grocery store, and you are stuck. You can't get up. <laughs> you, you, and this, this, this isn't five minutes. This is like all day. You're there in the garden. You are stuck, and there's no help any place. And so you, you do your best. 
And it's so bad, you just lie in the middle of the front yard. You just lie down and say, I'll just wait till she get home, Lord. I'll just wait till she get home, maybe she can help me. My point is, we are aging every day, but we don't notice it except in decades. What you do at 20 matters when you're 40. <clears throat> and we need to take care of our bodies. We need to take care of them. Because the temporary benefit that that care provides, you need. I need. All of us need it. If not, it's sooner or later. I mean, we're all sooner or later going to be disqualified from doing ministry because our body gives out. So we're not long for this world. You get 80, good on you. But I do not want to shoot my, my boat, have holes in it, and injure myself, be, de be detrimental to my own well-being so that I have to quit early, so that I'm disqualified too soon. Now, there are things that come upon us that we can't do anything about. Inherited things from mom and dad, Adam. Circumstances. Air we breathe. Flu, diseases. It doesn't mean that when they come, we just need to say, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. We still need to fight in faith, believing that his promises are true for us, and we can overcome these things, and God can do miracles on our behalf. But we can't stop the fact that we are going to be attacked from some outside force or some internal genetic thing that just clicks on at a certain time. And so there are things that are beyond us, but there are things we can control. And those which we can, we should. So that we don't find ourselves with a back that's out of place, and because of it, we are disqualified from serving in the parking lot ministry. We can't serve in children's ministry because we can't pick nobody up. We can't, do, we can't do life group because I'm on my back in my bed. I make my body my slave so that I'm able to minister to others and not be disqualified. And so you got to do some stuff. You got you to eat right. Now, I didn't, I didn't say perfect. I said right. As best as you possibly can. And enjoy whatever you want to do in moderation. No. Enjoy what you should. <laughs> You know what I mean, don't you? Don't you? Yeah. Moderate. But there's so much, there's so much we can do right that we don't do because we're lazy. We don't practice discipline. So I beg you, eat as well as you can. Secondly, exercise. Do some things that get your body going so that you can be strong. Every day of my life, I make my body my slave. I'm up early doing my devotions at 4, 4.30. I'm down in my gym. I got a little thing I built down there. It's this little big closet. Well, I'm on a treadmill. And in the summer, I'm outside running on the street. And I, I'm, I'm in, it's not the kind of running that you, you can read a book with. It's, it's, after I'm finished in it, I burn 800 calories in an hour. And afterwards, I, I look like I jumped in a pool. And my other ministers say, why in the world do you work out so hard? I said, because my life is heavy. And I, my body has to be strong enough to bear the burdens that my soul must carry. If not, my body will break down because of the strain on my soul. 
And so I have to work out like this. I have to push myself beyond my boundaries. Twice a month, I feel like I'm going to throw up. That's not a good feeling. But you know it's because you're oxygen deprivated. And as a result, your body is saying, stop. It's trying to expel all the things that are taking blood away from the rest of your body. And it's trying to get the stuff that's in your stomach out so blood can go other places. That's why you do that. That, that happens to me twice a month. I hate it. My body is a slave, though. I make my body a slave. And, and every day, it's crying out for an emancipation proclamation. It says, Lord, stop this lunatic from doing this to me regularly. Every day. Now, I do a bunch of different things so I don't develop tendinitis and all kinds of injuries. But I do, I do it. And it has nothing to do with ego. It has nothing to do with trying to figure out how I, I, I can somehow get my body beach ready. It has everything to do with I just want to be available. And I tell my kids, they know it. I walk downstairs to work out. I, I tell them, I want you to know I hate working out. In fact, sometimes I greet them that way. Have I told you today I hate working out? <laughs> and I do that. And they, they say, why do you do I say, because I don't ever want you to have to care for me. Ever, ever, ever. I'm going to be 80 like this, y'all. That's what I tell them. I'm going to be 80 like this. Now, I realize I need the grace of God, but some of us don't allow ourselves to participate in his grace because we, are, we make ourselves ineligible for some things. Working hard doesn't afford you things in God. It doesn't ensure that you will get blessings from him just because you worked hard or were disciplined. What it does do is make sure you are not ineligible to receive them. It allows you to be qualified. So Peter says in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, he says, To your faith add moral excellence, to your moral excellence knowledge, to your knowledge self-control, to your self-control perseverance, to your perseverance godliness, and to your godliness brotherly kindness. If these qualities are yours... And to your brotherly kindness, love. And if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten the purification from his own sins. But if you keep adding these, I want you to know, you will never stumble. So what does Peter say? You do these disciplines, adding these things to your life, to your faith on a regular basis. It puts you in a position to be on the short list of being used by God. You will always be usable, and when you are used, you will always be fruitful. But if you don't add these things, you're not on a short list. You're not available to be used. And so it's important for us to use the disciplines, practice the disciplines that we find in Scripture so that we are just available when he says, I'm looking for somebody. And his eyes search to and fro throughout the entire earth trying to find somebody. It says in 1 Chronicles 16, 9, somebody he can support. And your job is this. If his eyes are searching throughout the earth to try to find somebody, that means there aren't many. Thus, make his search short. Make sure you are available because you have disciplined your life to be eligible. I'm ready. 
Outside of the physical disciplines, there are spiritual disciplines. Now, the physical disciplines only last here, temporal benefit. But the spiritual and godly disciplines, wow, they are for all. They help you in every way possible. And those disciplines are word and prayer. I get, stay in your Bible. Read it every day. Every day get in this word. And pray. Learn to communicate with your God. Talk to him. And take your Bible with you when you do so, so that you can understand how others prayed and how he sounds when he speaks, so that you know how you ought to sound when you talk to him. Because if you were to sound like him when you talk to him, it's hard for him to go against his own will when you say something that's his will. So you want to sound like him when you talk. The only way you can do that is to read his word and realize how he sounds, so that when you talk to him, there's agreement. This is why he can say, Anybody who asks, in, asks anything in my name, I'll do it. That, is not, that does not mean that any prayer you, pr- you pray, you can just slap the name of Jesus on it, and somehow you're going to do it. No, no, no. It means anything that is under the authority that is my name that represents my will. Anything under that I have endorsed, anything under that umbrella, when you ask, I'll do it. Why? Because you're already asking what he's already endorsed. Yeah. But if you don't know what he's already endorsed, how can you ask? That's why you read your Bible every day, and then you pray, pray, and you bring your Bible into the prayer room. Secondly, you need to make sure you practice holiness, purity, that you are the best Christian when nobody's watching, so that you are a great Christian when everybody else is. Please make God smile in your personal life. Let him be happy with your thought life. Let him be happy with your passions. When you feel yourself going left, when you know you should go right, that's where you discipline your soul to say, I'm not going there today. I'm taking that thought captive. I'm not going to think that way about that person. No, no, no. That's destructive. That's hurtful. That doesn't lead to any place that's kingdom. I'm going to begin to forgive. I'm going to begin to think great thoughts. I'm going to begin to, to let, let th- things that are pure and perfect and lovely of good report, it says in Philippians. Dwell on these things, he says. That's what I'm going to think about that person, that situation. You discipline your soul, so the holiness, you act like God in here. Remember, you are made in his image. The problem is we've fallen so far, it's hard for us to find any image that looks like him in us. But the But the key is this, if we discipline ourselves, we begin to see more of him in us. And as a result, we reflect him to the world. Holiness, holiness, becoming like him. Relational integrity. Boy, we need to be people that practice this. Jesus said, they will know you are mine. They out there in the world will know you are mine by how much you love one another. There ought to be something distinct and different about how we treat each other. Loving by way of practice, the unlovable. Love does its best work when it's not reciprocated. Kindness does its best work when somebody's mean to you. Relational integrity. That we here know how to love one another. Deeply, from the heart. Not one of those, well, I love her. Because you theologically say you have to. But the last person you want to be around. Let me give you a tip. Whoever is coming to your mind right now. (laughs) The video screen is playing about the person who bugs you the most or has offended you most often. That is the one God wants you to practice on. (laughs) 
So many people at this point went like this. <laughs> Loving that person. Why? Because they're a bigger fish to fry. You can't love people who are trying to love you. They may not be good at it, but they're trying to do the right thing. You can't love people who are trying to do the right thing. How in the world are you going to love your enemy? This is practice, y'all. Not Allen Iverson practice. <laughs> not practice, it doesn't matter. This practice matters. That matters more. Yes. Loving people who don't love us, who hate us. How are you going to do that if you can't practice it in here? Relational integrity. Discipline yourself because it has, it has great gain for all things. It helps advance the kingdom in somebody else's life. It makes you more like Jesus. It helps us be a good witness to the world. It has great gain in all ways. And then labor, what it means, work. I mean, <laughs> we've got some 600 people in this congregation between Sterling and here that serve this house on a regular basis to make sure that when you walk in on Sunday morning, all you have to do is worship. Yeah. You're not distracted. You're not thinking, what was that? It just flows. And you think, that's what I like without impediment. I just walk in, met God, walked out, feel better. <laughs> but 600 people make it work. And those 600 people, whether it be in children's ministry, the ushers, the parking lot attendants, those 600 people every day have, have responsibilities just like you and more. Yeah. And yet they show up. Why? Because they are disciplined. <laughs> they don't just call in and say, I don't feel good today. <laughs> it's my service to God. Yes. It's my service to God and to his people. And everybody you see that you walk past and figure they're a fixture, make sure you say thank you. <laughs> During this government shutdown, I have, I've had to travel quite a bit. So I walk through TSA. I, I, every officer I met, thank you for coming to work today. Thank you. For, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's how you ought to treat the people who are serving and don't get paid. They're just here because they love Jesus and love you. They are disciplined to do the right thing even when they don't feel like it. What does it do? Provide great gain for you. Great gain. I'm going to cut this short because I've gone long anyway. Self-control has great benefit. And he says... Of all these fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, he says, against such things, there is no law. Now, I think he's using an agrarian analogy here to make a point about what happened in Eden. Meaning, he's saying, these are the fruit of the Spirit. He could have used any kind of metaphor to talk about the, the manifestations of the Spirit in somebody's life, but he said, these are the fruit of the Spirit. Adam and Eve were in the garden. God said, I, got, I have one rule. Don't eat from that one tree. In the day you eat of it, you will die. But I want you to know, against all these other trees, all the other trees in the garden, I have no rule. No law. If you want to eat nine apples for breakfast, knock yourself out. I got no problem, no problem. 16 watermelon for lunch, enjoy yourself. No issue at all. Fine with that. I have no law. And if you ever find yourself lacking love, take another bite of fruit. Come on. That's good. 
There's no law against getting more. Self-control, take another bite of fruit. There's no law against getting more. You can have as much of these as you want because you can have as much of God as you want. And these things represent who he is best in terms of character for us. I beg you, be his image to the world and practice these things. Let the manifestation of the Spirit of God work its way to such a degree that when people see you, they see him. It just comes out.